Welcome to episode 24 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today we are going to be talking about uh, how to build an author platform. Uh, Yeah, build an author platform and also talk a little bit about author brand, um, um, sort of that, that aspect of it. Um, but before we continue, I do have to apologize if the audio quality is not that great. Um, I am suffering from seasonal allergies like you would not believe. (laughs) So in my room right now, I have a air filter running and also my dog. (laughs) So if you hear whining, whimpering and snuffling, that's because the dog is wandering in and out of my office. So (laughs) he's our guest. He's, He's the podcast guest. Um, he's kind of a, he's kind of an asshole sometimes, but you know, <laughs> all right. So let's, let's start off by talking about what an author brand is before we go on to platform, because I think a lot of people get confused about what branding is in publishing. So, uh, do you want to start Kelly? No, I think you should start with that one. <laughs> Passing the buck back to me. <laughs> you know, a, Author brand is actually somewhat similar to voice in that there is uh, some often an intangible quality. Um, but an author brand is the same thing as any other brand. If you drink soda, Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, whatever, these are all different brands. If you are into fashion, um, you know, we've got Armani, Chanel, uh, Yves Saint Laurent, that, that, all that sort of, these brands sort of have kind of a distinct aesthetic look um in and also has a whole bunch of images and connotations associated with it and an author now we're talking about author here we're not talking about you as the writer and artist we're talking about author as entity and business person so when we talk about author brand and developing an author brand it's the uh, comprised of a number of things it's your obviously your output what your products are, which being your books, um, and you as a person. Where it gets a little bit tricky these days is like how you as a person are separate from you as a brand. (laughs) Um, especially now that social media has sort of kind of erased the barrier between the author and the reader. But there's, there's you as a person, but the author as brand is only a part of you as a person, if that makes sense. The author brand is the reader-facing part. Obviously, your readers are not going to be privy to every private aspect of your life. But this author brand, the public face that you have, is comprised of a lot of things. Your sense of humor, um, you know, your the way you look at the world. Uh, again, this is a lot like voice. So you as a person, you being personable, you being accessible, you being whatever... Um, and it, it's hard because a lot of times author brands as like authors as celebrity, we'll put it that way, sort of rise organically. Um, you know, you, you don't immediately get, you know, come out of the gate with a fully formed author brand. Um, but let's take some YA authors writing today. Uh, we'll pick, we'll, uh, Libba Bray. I love Libba, so we can discuss Libba's author brand. There's Libba's books, which we'll get to later, but Libba as a brand, Libba as a person, is very funny, very charming. Uh, she likes a lot of sort of 70s rock and roll. <laughs> um, you know, she loves Robert Plant. Uh, also loves uh, Christopher Guest movies. This is all stuff that I've gleaned just kind of by casually following her on Twitter and on Instagram. And that's what kind of your social media does is... And we'll get to platform later. But, you know, so you, all this put together, you get the sense of Libba as a brand as being quirky, funny, observant, um, and cool. <laughs> or at least I think she's cool. So <laughs> so that that is a conception of a brand. Then you have somebody like Rainbow Rowell, who wrote uh, Eleanor and Park, uh, Fangirl, and most recently Carry On. 
And her author brand is very sort of geeky, you know, nerdy, geeky. She talks about Benedict Cumberbatch a lot. She clearly loves Harry Potter and is extremely familiar with the fanfic world. So Rainbow's author brand is kind of the kind of geeky, relatable um, person. So that, but obviously I don't know Libba or Rainbow role as people. You know, I don't know. I'm not privy to their innermost secrets. I don't actually know what they're like in their private lives. Uh, this is just the face that I see. And therefore, to me, that's their brand. I don't know. Kelly, do you have anything you want to add or contribute? Yeah, I mean, I think that pretty much makes sense. It's a collection of associations that you have with an author. You know, it's kind of like their public face. If you think back to, to like... um old Hollywood, like 1950s and before, when there was no paparazzi, there was no anything, like everything that you knew about celebrities was really carefully crafted by the studios that owned their contracts. Mm -hmm. And it would, you know, everything that you knew about their relationships or their private life or their whatever was all like a very carefully scripted narrative. And that was their brand. It was the type of movies they were in. It was the way that they dressed. It was the way that they behaved. But that wasn't who they really were. That was all you know, and now it's no longer like that. It's it's no longer like such a false construct because we do have social media and these people are now in charge of their own branding and their own message. They don't have someone doing it for them. Um, you know, and so it's it's different than it was then, but I think that's an easy way to think about it if you, like, think about old Hollywood just because it's such a stark difference between, like, the personal and the branding um, so that it can help you get a handle on what it is, and then you can kind of apply that to the much more nuanced situation that we have going on today. I mean, it, it, the most famous example of that would be Rock Hudson. Mm-hmm. The image that Rock Hudson had, or rather that was kind of given to them, him, was very masculine, kind of a hunky romantic lead, but also ultimately chaste <laughs> and safe. That is essentially Rock Hudson's brain. Of course, in in his personal life, Rock Hudson was gay. Um, but the, his studio crafted a lot of relationships for him. Um, even if his homosexuality was, in fact, well-known in Hollywood, the, the image that he portrayed to the public was a little bit different. Um, so that's kind of a, a more well-known example of of a brand and a rather uh, rock Hudson as a figure and who he was as a private person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, the allergies, I swear it's, it's terrible. It's I'm so glad I don't suffer from allergies because it just seems like the worst thing. I have absolutely maxed out the medication that a human being can take. Um, and yet still I sound like this. <laughs> All right, so that's a little bit about author brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and now let's move on to platform, which does tie into brand, I think. A little bit. Um, it's not, you know, like a in the, in the Venn diagram of author brand and author platform, it's not like a circle, but there's a significant overlap there. And what you do on your author platform feeds into, or should mm-hmm. ideally compliment your author brand, mm-hmm. I guess, if for the lack of a better word. So, Kelly, do you want to take the lead on this one? Sure. Um, so, thinking about author platform, um, this actually came up as a potential topic because a friend of mine, um, I had posted on Twitter, I was looking for topics to write about on Pub Crawl, and my friend Marissa had said, hey, I'd love to know more from your perspective about um, author platforms. Marissa is a nonfiction writer, and for nonfiction writers especially, they're often told, you need a platform, and no one really knows what that means, you know, beyond just, like, get on social media. Um, and while platforms are incredibly important for nonfiction writers, especially, pretty much a- any writer can benefit from having a platform, whether you write nonfiction or fiction or anything. Your platform is essentially, what is the best way to put this? 
so in part, it is your, your public reach or your audience or the, you know, if you think about it literally like the platform, if you were to step up on the platform to reach more people, you know, you can think about it um, literally in that way. And it can involve many things. Social media is obviously um, a large one and an easy one that everyone can access for the most part. Most people can find at least one um, social media tool that they are comfortable using and can use well. So that can contribute to your platform. Other platforms are organizations that you're part of. If you are a teacher, if you um, are a member of a, you know, a reading series, if you run, you know, a reading series or another literary event, you know, somewhere in your local community that contributes to your platform. Your platform is basically all of your networks and all of the things um, that give you further further reach to a wider audience that lend credibility to your voice that show that you have roots and are connected in the things that you are writing about. Um, you know, so for nonfiction writers, that part of the platform is really important. You, you know, if you're writing about food, you want to have roots in the food community that lends credibility to um, your authorial voice. If you're writing fiction, you know, about um, anything, you know, about a particular place, having roots in that place, or about you know, anything that you can have roots in that lends validity to your voice essentially contributes to your platform. So it's a bunch of different things combined together. I think the platform is really any way, any and and that includes social media, but as Kelly mentioned, other organizations, any way to do two things. One, amplify your voice to a broad audience, and two create engagement with the community because, mm -hmm. you know, for example, um, if I got a proposal in from an author and, um, and look at their bio and they're talking about their platform now for fiction platforms, a little bit different from nonfiction. It's much more important to have a, a good platform in nonfiction because you want to be assured that the person isn't just talking to thin air. <laughs> Um, with, with whatever subject they're writing about. Um, but for example, say if I get a proposal in and I'm looking at their, you know, and they say, oh, we have 10,000 followers on Twitter. And I go and check their Twitter feed and see that, yes, they have 10,000 followers, but they also follow 11,000 people. That's not to me a sign of an engaged Twitter platform, if that makes sense. Like they're just following everyone back indiscriminately. Uh, and to me, that doesn't seem like a quote real platform. Um, other other platforms could be if you have any media contacts, so television, radio, newspaper, anything like that would be considered a platform. Something like if you wrote a column for a magazine, and that magazine had, if you can try and get the numbers of how many subscribers, what the reach is, if, if it's an online magazine, basically roughly how many page views it gets per day, how many repeat views. There's a lot of metrics you can kind of discover. I mean, you can do this for your own, own websites as well. I mean, there's a lot of tracking functions. I mean, we, we have, we track stats on the pub, pub crawl website. Um, you know, we, we can see roughly where our readers are coming from, how many are repeat readers, um, roughly how many page views we get a day, what the most popular posts are, you know, that, but that's a function of time as well. You know, all of these things take time to grow. Um, mm -hmm. and so I know a lot of authors feel a lot of pressure, particularly in fiction, you know, like, Oh, you know, I need to think about my brand. I need to think about my platform. I need to do this as soon as possible, but audiences can only be grown. They can't be created. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people panic about this, but don't worry <laughs> if you don't have that many followers. Don't worry if you don't like Twitter. Don't worry if, you know, one or more social media things you don't like. Um, there are definitely plenty of successful authors out there who aren't on social media. 
particularly mm-hmm. in YA, it's yeah. less common, but in many, many, many other genres and categories, there exist authors who are quite successful that are not on social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that you have to think about it. You have to think about what it is that you write and then determine, you know, what the size of your platform needs to be if you need to have that platform before querying or whether or not you can kind of grow that platform along with your career. You know, again, for nonfiction, having a, an established platform is going to be important at the querying stage because, again, nonfiction is about communicating information essentially and we want to make sure that you are a trusted source of information and so that's where your platform becomes really important but I think that question of how do I build a platform and what is it and how do I describe it and you know think about all the things that feed into your experience you know why are you experienced in this particular topic and where does your expertise come from and what knowledge do you have and how have you shared that knowledge already with your community? What makes you believe that there's going to be interest in this book? You know, all of that is your platform and you just have to translate that for an agent at the querying stage for nonfiction. If you're writing fiction, then if you have a large audience already, if you've got a popular social media feed or something like that, then certainly mention it, link to your website if you have one, you know, by all means. But I think in fiction, you can grow your platform as your career grows. It's less important for fiction to have a platform at the querying stage. I think, honestly, platform and reach doesn't really matter if I'm looking at a book, uh, to if it's a fiction novel to acquire. Even if that person has a big social media pre- presence because just because you have a large social media presence doesn't necessarily mean that all translates into sales. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it's hard to say because you may have a million Twitter followers, but depending on just the book, <laughs> depending on the book, it really does only a fraction may or may not even buy a copy. So just because you have a large platform doesn't necessarily translate to sales and vice versa. So it's less important. I guess the only different, the one place it may in fact matter is if you, for example, have a story that you serially publish on Wattpad and you have like a million readers on Wattpad, that's already an established audience for your writing. And that definitely matters in fiction. Um, but other than that, it, it's less important. <laughs> I think for a fiction writer, what's more mm-hmm. important is your brand. Yeah, I would say that too. I would think if you had to choose one, I would tell nonfiction writers to focus on platform and fiction writers to focus on brand. Of course, if you can do both, then do both. That's great. Um, but yeah, that's how I would break it down too. So let's return to this concept of a brand um so there's you as the artist as i mentioned before you know writing whatever stories that you feel compelled to tell um and then there's the author the author is an entity at least that's the way i see it the author is an entity it's a it's a business it's an entity that readers interact with that they readers expect products from Now, I know it sounds really cold and callous to call a book a product, but that is what it is. I mean, when you're buying a product, you're not actually just buying what's in it. I mean, otherwise, people wouldn't actually spend all that time on things like packaging or marketing. Um, You know, what does it mean? For example, I'm a big beauty fanatic. Like, I love makeup. I love skincare. I love all that kind of stuff. What does it mean? why when I have my preferred brands over this brand? I mean, there's something kind of intangible. Like, even though if I look at the list of ingredients across 99% of all the beauty products are pretty much going to be the same. So why am I loyal to a couple brands here, a couple brands there? 
you know, there's a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, sometimes it's just, it works for me. You, you know, whatever formulation this company has, it just works better for me than this other product. And that's sort of similar with books because there may be a writer, even if that writer doesn't produce a perfect book, it just works for me. <laughs> and there may be another writer who has a similar premise, um, or, you know, something similar, same, same genre, whatever. And it just doesn't. And there's something intangible there. It works for me. One works for me over the other. Mm-hmm. And that is all kind of the indefinable aspects of, of branding and marketing. So how do you cultivate that? Um, to be completely honest, some of that's just going to be there naturally. You know, there's, there's again, we've talked about this too, like, you know, writing being an art as well as a craft, voice being craft and some indefinable je ne sais quoi. Branding is a lot like that too. An author brand can be comprised of a number of different things, what their personality seems like online, uh, their voice throughout their work. If that's consistent, that could be their brand. Um, or in the case of something like a long running series, then the characters in the world themselves become the brand. You know, for example, like Sandra Clare and her Shadow Hunters books. That's the brand, the kind of a pre-established world, and the the characters kind of change throughout the different series. But the, the brand that people are buying into are the Shadow Hunters. So it does vary from author to author, and some people are very savvy about this and can hone in on their brand right away, um, and can you know exploit that to their greatest benefit. And I don't mean exploit in a bad way; they just use that to their greatest benefit. Other people, not quite so business savvy <laughs> in that regard. And that's okay. You know, fiction, unlike nonfiction, you have room to grow and try new things. There are plenty of authors as well who have had a long career um, and then they've rebranded themselves. At my old publisher, we used to actually do this. We used to get proposals in. And often they were, you know, romance writers or mystery writers. And the sales at their previous house were either declining or just not as, you know, robust as it used to be or what they want it to be. So sometimes we'd acquire them and rebrand them, basically relaunch their career. And that takes some doing that, you know, we have to first identify what made them appealing to their audience in the first place. And then we have to figure out how to package it to the reader to make it appealing in a a similar but different way. Um, and it, like, again, I know this may sound disheartening or discouraging to make it, you know, sound so soulless, (laughs) you know, I think there's sometimes this, it's not a myth really, but it's kind of this shared dream that publishing nurtures or writing nurtures art, creativity and artists and things like that. And that too is Mm -hmm. to some extent true. In your own writing life, and your creative life, all of that is definitely true. And you need to nurture that side of yourself. You need to feed your creative self. But mm-hmm. when you get to publishing, that's business. <laughs> and that's what we do. We can't sell creativity. It doesn't work that way. We can't sell... I mean, if you guys are at all familiar with the art world, it's very similar Music is also very similar. You know, any of these creative fields, there's the creative side of it and there's the business side of it. Um, so that's kind of the, the branding part. Now, how to identify your brand is actually going to be easier once you have more than one book out. Um, you know, I, or you've written more than one book. I think, you know, because not everybody has not everybody publishes their first book. Many people have written trunk novels, um, what, what I call trunk novels, novels that you've written and then put away in the trunk um, as you're learning and honing your craft. But if you actually review your work as a whole, you will probably see trends, common themes, um, writing stylistic quirks. All of those are unique to you and you can kind of use them as being part of your brand. 
Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? What is it with John Irving? It's like wrestling and bears. Bears. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like the John Irving. Weird family dynamics. And I mean weird family dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, bears. I don't know what it is about bears, but it is really kind of a thing in John Irving's work. Um, in or uh, you know Sarah J. Moss, who is a pub crawl alum, she's written. Gosh, she's incredibly prolific. She's written five books, I think, and two are coming out this year. So by the end of twenty sixteen, she will have seven books out. And I think you could see one could venture to say Sarah's brand. Um, she writes about fairies. But not like Victorian twee fairies. These are uh, much more of the kind of elf mold, like Tolkien elf mold or like Nordic or Scandinavian elf mold. They're like human size. They have, you know, uh, powers and things like that. So I think kind of a, more of a naturalistic, animalistic fae, I think is a, what we would say. And all of her books are kind of sexy <laughs> and feature strong uh, strong-willed heroines, I would say. Um, and all of that kind of culminates in a brand for Sarah, I think. Um, uh, sexy guys, I think. That's probably a big appeal of her books as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Sarah does write kind of attractive heroes. I'll, I'll put it out there. <laughs> um, so... Again, like I said, it's easier once you have more books out in the world because you are not entirely in control of your own brand either. It's create. It's just something that you create between you and your readers. Yeah, it's like symbiotic. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a feedback loop. Um, obviously, you shouldn't cater to your audience solely, but your audience is drawn to you for a particular reason. Um, and whatever that reason is, they'll probably find in your work over and over again, regardless of what direction you go in. You mm-hmm. know, for example, I'll put, I'll bring up Libba again. Libba Bray, her first book being these kind of lush gothic fantasies, and then two of her books being kind of these wacky, surreal books. And then she returned back to her kind of darker historical supernaturals. And yet... I found kind of a common thread in all of them. Libba often likes to explore in her books really complicated human relationships, I think. Um, and But also more than that, in each book, she kind of approaches a bigger social topic. So in A Great and Terrible Beauty, she kind of focuses on the position of women in society at that time. Um going bovine, she really actually takes a really good look and tackles the concept of death. Uh, And then Beauty Queens, she also is looking at the way society treats women, but in a different time period. So if Great and Terrible Beauty looked at it from a historical perspective, the Victorian era, and it's got magic to kind of... These women have magic to sort of essentially cope with with the restraints society has placed on them. Uh, Beauty Queens is no magic, but she's still examining the topic, the way girls and women are treated today. And in The Diviners, she definitely is kind of looking at America as a whole at that time. So she's sort of tackling uh, social issues, often things of race, sexuality. Um, So a lot of her books, I find, are kind of vehicles for sort of larger ideas that Libba is working through. Hello, puppy. <laughs> Sorry, my dog is here and he's being needy. <laughs> um, so what about you, Kelly? Do you have a particularly a favorite author that you want to dissect their brand for you? I'm trying to think about what that might be, specific authors whose brands that I really love. I think most of the examples that I can think of are where sort of the work is the brand unless the author is the brand. So like Harry Potter obviously is the brand, um, right. as opposed to JK Rowling. Um, okay. What about Salinger? 
Yeah, okay. All right. So <laughs> here's my confession. I I love JD Salinger. Um I worked at Harold Ober Associates where he was represented while he lived. I did not ever speak with him directly, although I did have to correspond with him uh, to send him some of his foreign rights um, things, which are what I was working on at the time. So I have no real personal, um, you know, communications with him. Whenever I said I corresponded, I mean, like, I would send him his contracts with, like, a post-it note on it that said, please sign these and return to me. And then he would return them and sign them. There was, <laughs> there was no personal correspondence going on there. Um and I loved him and his work well beyond that time. So I think I read The Catcher in the Rye when I was like 16. There's also a lot of problematic stuff about J.D. Salinger. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I acknowledge that. Uh, yeah. Um, but he has a very particular brand. I mean, he himself, you know, was a recluse and shied away from, um, society and public life. And after a certain point, no longer did interviews. He would not allow any adaptations of his work. Um, after a certain point, he would not allow illustrated covers anymore, which is why now what you see most often are kind of those plain, um, covers for all of his books. There was, I think in the first, um, edition of Catcher on the Rye, and some of them have since, um, reprinted, they had that carousel image on them. But for the yeah, most part, that. for the most part, all of his books have plain covers and, um, no author photo. And that was stipulations in his foreign contracts as well, that all the covers had to be plain title only, no author photo. Um, you know, so a lot of his author brand has like lots of quirkiness and very bizarre, strange sort of a thing. But within his books, too, there's a lot of young geniuses, um, family dysfunction, um, small children who are also geniuses. <laughs> you know, there's lots of um, like disillusionment with regular life or seeing incredibly special things in mundane and ordinary moments. Um, suicide is a recurring thing in his works as well. You know, so there's a lot of that in there. You kind of, you know, when you're reading a J.D. Salinger book, he has that thing where he italicizes syllables within words to emphasize which portion of the word is being stressed. You know, so he has a very clear and distinct author brand at a time. You know, basically by refusing to participate in his own author brand, that's kind of how it came about. Yeah, he's kind of got the anti-brand. I remember when you were working there, I was like, what, he's still alive? Yeah, he actually died um, about six months after I left. I know. I can't believe he's still alive. Like, no one's talked to him in how many years? A lot. Um... So going back to the point where the author brand is not entirely in control, in your control, you can't necessarily control what other people associate with it. I mean, you can, to some extent, try and control what people associate you with. But, you know, we'll, we'll go back to the actor example. When you think of the actor James Dean, you think brooding. You think uh, kind of disaffected. Um, and even... If James Dean was not like that in real life, of course, obviously, I never knew James Dean. Um, that was his brand. That was his image. That's kind of really what I'm, I guess I'm talking about. Your brand is your image. Mm -hmm. What people associate with you with, what they perceive you as. Um, and, and it's hard to look outside yourself to really define what that is. It's probably easier for other people to tell you what your brand is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got very good friends who are honest and will, will tell you these things. Um, but I also think to some extent you can cultivate your own image. I mean, I think we all did that to some extent when we were younger, or at least I did. There was an image I wanted to cultivate. Um, so who I am today as a person is a, a combination of this image of myself that I wanted to be coupled with my life experiences and what I like. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But when I was younger, the image I wanted to cultivate was this, <laughs> it's going to sound really funny or weird, um, was this kind of really practical, doesn't let feelings get in the way kind of a person. That was the image I wanted people to think of me as. So, and and that sort of fed into the way I acted and the way I reacted to things. I it wasn't like I did this unconsciously. I kind of consciously approached things that way. Um, so, a lot of times people will tell me, "Oh, you're very level-headed, or you're very calm, or you're very practical." And I was like, "Well, that's because I cultivated that image of myself." Um, so. You know, you can cultivate it to some extent, but it's, you know, there are probably people out there who don't have that image of me at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, one good thing to think of, too, um, if you're still struggling to kind of grasp what this is, is kind of Instagram. So Instagram is quite literally like you select the images that you want to put up there. It is not a complete you know, window into your life. It is a very carefully cultivated snapshot of moments throughout the day. And and everybody's Instagram feed can have different things. Maybe you take a lot of selfies. Maybe you take a lot of pictures of food. Maybe you take a lot of pictures of sunsets. Maybe you take a lot of pictures of your kid. You know, whatever it is that you take pictures of will start to evolve and become you know, kind of your Instagram identity. That's what people expect to see when they click on your name and they scroll through your photos. And it's something that you've cultivated. And then when people like it, if you get a lot of likes on a certain photo, you're like, oh, you know, the people that follow me on Instagram really like this photo. What is it about this photo that they like so that I can try to replicate that and get a lot of likes again? You know, that's kind of like, people building a brand everybody has their own little brand now when you're on instagram yeah although when i look at my instagram i'm like wow that's all over the place (laughs) (laughs) i think they you know i think that tends to happen as you go through life and like jj said we you know kind of go through different personalities like for example my instagram right now is very heavy on my daughter but (laughs) before i had a kid it featured a lot of different things and so you know people change and your interests change and the things that you want to share on social media change too. You know, we don't tweet every thought that runs through our minds. Usually. Um, we hopefully actually, (laughs) yeah, especially if you're an author, don't, don't do that. Um, but you know, you select what it is that you want to say and how you want to say it. And then you say it and you engage with people. Um, you know, so that's, that's what it's about on social media and elsewhere. It's just cultivating these select things um, that kind of give a window into who you are or into who you want your audience to believe that you are. Yeah, I think, honestly, I don't know how to tell you guys to give you practical advice about how to, quote, grow your following. I think personally... When I follow authors on social media, um, it, it's it's not because they have a, a book that I love necessarily. It's not. It's 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 hard to say because when I feel like there's a something that the author, something about the author that I like and I want to get to know more, and again, that's going to be different from author to author. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll follow somebody because I like their sense of humor. Sometimes I'll follow someone because I, I like their pictures. I think they're a talented photographer. Um, so it, it can it can kind of de- depend. And the, the thing I like about social media is that you can cultivate these different aspects of yourself. You know, so... Which is why I don't necessarily think social media is a great marketing tool. I think it's a great engagement tool. And that's, I think, also important. If in, in the process of building your platform and your brand, engagement with your readers is actually very important. Um, I don't mean that you have to reply to every comment or every tweet or whatever. You don't have to do that because if you did, you would never actually get any real writing done. But the people 
people respond better when they sense there's a real person behind the social media. They, you know, when somebody's only marketing or shilling their products or shilling their books, you're, you know, it's like who follows, I don't know, through Delta Airlines. You never actually follow Delta Airlines unless you're having like a customer service problem. <laughs> then you'll at them incessantly until somebody fixes your issue. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah, because you, you know that Delta's Twitter feed is not going to be a person. It's, you know, there. So, you know, so, but engagement, like I said, is important because I think actually engagement is what grows your community. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe really more than platform. Community is maybe the word we should be using. Yeah. You know who is brilliant at this recently within the last few years is Taylor Swift. You you mm-hmm. cannot go on BuzzFeed without finding an article about Taylor Swift, you know, leaving a comment on somebody's Tumblr about their recent breakup or, you know, posting an Instagram comment on one of her fans, you know, pages. And it's not everyone and it's not all the time, but she just has this reputation for consistently engaging with her fans and it creates this massive love and loyalty for her. Yeah. She engaging in your community. What it does is it creates goodwill amongst your followers. Um, or if you want to be extremely mercenary about it, good credit, uh, engaging with the community builds goodwill and fosters. I mean, it's a relationship like anything else. You want to, you know, your friendships and your significant others, you want to cultivate those relationships and your relationship to your readers is going to be somewhat similar. So engagement, I think, more than just talking, you know, I think yeah. you can have a million followers and not actually engage a single one. So I think that more or less sums up what I've got to say about platform and brand what about you yeah i think that about covers it all right so what have you been reading i've been sick so i have not been reading much at all um but i did just start reading uh truth witch which is a pub crawl alum book it's uh susan denard and so yeah i just just started it i think i'm only you know a chapter or two in um, but I'm excited. I've heard great things. Yeah, I'm kind of in a reading slump, to be completely honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, because I blasted through so many books in, the, like, last month. You know, I read all the Maria V. Siders books. So that's, like, nine books in, like, two weeks. <laughs> so I'm a little bit burned out. Um, but I do have in from the library Shadow Shaper by Daniel Jose Older. That I want to read. Um... I'm starting to think something else came in and I remember it kind of came in. Oh, and these shallow graves by Jennifer Donnelly. Uh, cause I just finished, uh, listening to revolution on, uh, audio, which is actually really good audio books. I highly recommend it. Um, so that had come in. Um, but I, I am a little bit in a reading slump. Um, it's, it's just that thing where I like open up my iPad before I go to bed at night and I just, don't really feel like reading and that happens yeah i've been there you know that happens too um it's kind of hard for me to admit sometimes because like that was like the one thing i was always known for is reading a lot (laughs) um but i'm just kind of in that place where i'm really not all that into books right now which is fine so yeah so any off menu recommendations any off-menu recommendations? I... No, I don't think so. I don't think I have anything new this week. I've been sick, so I had a fever earlier this week because apparently when you have a child, you're just doomed to be sick for the first seven or eight years. I don't know. It really sucks. <laughs> um, so I spent most of this week in bed. Uh, so I don't really have anything new. Yeah, I don't have anything new either. I mean, I'm just sort of maintaining all my podcasts that I am listening to. Mm -hmm. I had started, and it's only two episodes in, but the creators of Welcome to Night Vale have another podcast called Alice Isn't Dead. Hmm. Um, 
Well, of course it's only two episodes, so who knows. But <laughs> I don't love it. And I was trying to articulate why the other day. Now, I did like Welcome to Night Vale quite a bit. But I eventually sort of fell off listening. Because ultimately, it got a little too convoluted for me to keep up. But what I liked about kind of the first, I don't know, 100 episodes or however many, Night Vale was the format. Night Vale is weird. That it's basically it's like a collection of weird. But the format of Night Vale is community radio. And that works. Yeah. You've got little segments, he's got announcements about his community, but all the announcements are weird and strange and you know, um it, so that really worked for me. And, until of course it got a little bit too overwhelming and I had to kind of drop off listening to it. Alice isn't dead is, I think, intended to be more of a, a narrative uh, than Welcome to Night Vale. And it's about a trucker going across country in search of her wife. Um, that's basically the premise of the title. So I guess it's kind of formatted as, like, the trucker. I don't actually know if we're given her name. Who's, I guess, recording things into a recorder, and she's talking to her wife, like reminiscing a little bit about their relationship. You don't get a ton, though, and, and sort of narrating what's happening to her on the road as she's in search of her wife. But, again, it, it's got the kind of signature Night Vale weird, but it doesn't work as well for me in, in this regard. So, But, like I said, only two episodes in, so it could very well turn around. But that's kind of it. Nothing really new, uh, as you can tell I'm also sick so I just kind of well not sick but my body thinks I'm sick yeah Ugh. <laughs> um, so are you working on anything no mm -mm. nope I haven't really worked on anything I've been doing some more freelancing I guess so um, I do have a couple of freelance clients so I'm working on some editing now I guess is the only thing that I'm working is on. Is it developmental stuff, or is it like copy edits? De developmental stuff. Cool. Well, why don't we give a plug yeah, for I'm... you? What do you edit? <laughs> um, okay. Um, I offer developmental edits. Um, I do query letter uh, editorial work. So if, if uh, anybody heard our query podcast and still feels like they need a little help, um, I do offer that service as well. Um, and then mostly developmental edits, um, for novels and short stories. I also do offer contract review services, um, under specific conditions. I won't do contract reviews for anyone contracting with the publisher that I work for. Obviously that would be a conflict of interest. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, but so yeah, just basic run of the mill editorial services available at uh, penandparsley.com. Awesome. Are there any particular genres or categories you focus on? I tend to focus mostly on fiction. Um, within that, I'm comfortable doing any genre with the exception of um, if it's really, really graphically violent, um, it's not necessarily for me. I mean, I can handle mysteries and thrillers and some violence and, you know, some stuff like that. But if it's, if it's just going to be like the equivalent of a slasher film, uh, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily be the best person for that. But otherwise it feels pretty much open. I've got a lot of experience in different things because of the places where I've worked. So yeah. Awesome. I am also working on edits. <laughs> But they're mine. <laughs> <laughs> of a different sort. Yeah, but they're mine. <laughs> um, I got copy edits back for Winter Song. Um, <laughs> I, this just shows you how old I am, but I was actually expecting them via paper. Oh, JJ. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I told you during our other podcast that you're the only person who prints that stuff out anymore. <laughs> they're fairly light, but I, can't, I just I can't read it on a screen. I feel like I, I can't make any decisions or I, I, and I miss a lot more when I'm reading on screen than I am when I'm reading on paper. I do agree with that. So I, despite being sent my copy edits electronically, I did have to print them out. Um, I know I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll plant a tree or several. Um, 
but I, I just, I can't, um, it, it is a little bit annoying, which is why I kind of wish they were paper because at least I could write the query on the pages themselves. And then, you know, sometimes you know, my copy edit, my copy editor had some questions about either a word choice or some logistical thing that I, you know, didn't address or whatever. And I can usually just like write in, you know, what my query or what my answer is. But I do that by hand now, and then I have to go back and transfer them all <laughs> to the the Word document, which has tracked changes on it, and it's a little bit annoying. I'm not a Luddite. I love technology, and uh, I'm actually pretty good with technology. I just, this one aspect, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I need paper <laughs> still. Yeah. Did you get any copy edits that surprised you? Like, was there anything in there that was just something that you wouldn't have thought of or that, you know, was not something you were expecting? Uh, no, not particularly. Although I was schooled on the difference between further and farther. <laughs> What's the difference between further and farther? Actually, in Merriam-Webster, they're interchangeable, but my copy editor did say that farther denotes physical distance. And further is kind of other metaphorical distance. And I was like, great. Now can you explain to me the difference between lie and lay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I, I have a million tricks to remember things like that. All I know for that one is that the Bob Dylan song is wrong. It should be lie, lady, lie instead of lay, lady, lay. As far as that, that was it, really. Um, And I don't think I... There wasn't anything in particular that was especially surprising to me. Mm -hmm. I I either... I must... Either my copy editor let other incorrect things stand because of the flow of the voice, Mm -hmm. or maybe I just naturally am really good with grammar. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that... I don't think I'm naturally all that great with grammar, um, because it, it, you know, it, the thing is, the thing about English, so I mentioned before, or maybe not, English was not my first language. Korean was, um, but I also learned English a lot, kind of alongside Korean. You know, I never, you know, I, w- I was born in the States and even though Korean was the first language I spoke, you know, I went to preschool and, and all three, four year olds are still acquiring language at that age as well. So I just acquired English along with everyone else. Um, and as a result, I don't necessarily think about English grammar rules as opposed to say Spanish, Mm -hmm. which I learned in an academic context. So I agonize over correct Spanish grammar in a way that I don't agonize over correct English grammar. Yeah. I think the thing too is that so many times the way that we speak is not necessarily grammatically correct. Like I'm pretty sure that sentence that just came out of my mouth was not grammatically correct. (laughs) Um, But so often the way that we speak is not grammatically correct. And so then when you're writing and you try to write in a grammatically correct way, it doesn't sound right, even though it is. Yeah, it sounds kind of stilted. Mm-hmm. A little bit. I mean, if you read academic papers versus a work of fiction, you know, fiction is a little bit more naturalistic uh, in terms of the way we speak in our day-to-day lives, whereas academic writing is not like, not so, it's less important to sound naturalistic in, in academic writing. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, nothing in particular really stood out. There were, I think, some, like, that and which things, like, you know, the conjunctive or, uh, you know, obviously all the grammar I learned in school has gone straight out of my brain. <laughs> uh, conjunctive words? Is that it? They may, they may be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, the only, like, you know, I was really good at diagramming sentences. <laughs> uh, I used to like that a lot. Um, but I don't know if I could diagram a sentence anymore. No, I, I used to be a real stickler for grammar. 
and know a lot about it and be able to diagram sentences and do all that stuff. And all of that knowledge is almost entirely lost to me. And I'm the worst typist. Everything that I type, everything has a million typos. I agonize over my emails now before I send them because I send at least three emails a day with typos in them. And I don't know what happened. I don't know like how that deteriorated in my mind, but somehow all that is just no longer readily available at my fingertips. And I was so sanctimonious about it once upon a time <laughs> that past me would be really ashamed. And yet here we are. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I don't have, I mean, I, I think I have a, my, my bugaboo fake ticks that bother me, but I, I don't think I was ever that much of a stickler for correct grammar, mostly because language evolves and changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we speak is obviously different from the way Shakespeare wrote and, and all that. So I'm not particularly married to, you know, everybody having perfect grammar. I am a little bit sad when definitions change. Yeah. Like in my lifetime, when definitions have changed, that makes me a little bit sad. Um, And especially because, you know, I read a lot of 19th century books as a child. So, but sometimes meanings of different things have changed since then. (laughs) Um, I have to kind of explain like the meaning of the word nice used to mean cheap. By the way, you guys, like, something's nice is cheap. So, <laughs> um, and I remember that, and I remember specifically I was in sixth grade, and that had come up, and somebody was like, how did you know that? And I was like, I don't know, I just picked it up in context from this book. Um, so there's, like, little things like that, or nowadays the fact that peruse means both to read very carefully and... <laughs> It also means to to skim, so, you know. I hate words like that that now mean two opposite things. Like, literally? Why? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a word for that in the English language. They're antonyms. they words that have two opposite meanings. The same word with two opposite meanings is an antonym. No, that's not an antonym. Is it not? No, an antonym is a word that has the opposite meaning of a different word. It's not the same word with two opposite meanings, right? Are we just betraying our complete ignorance? You, you're probably <laughs> right. Now I have to look it up. No, I have you're to know right. what an antonym is. What's the... What? <laughs> Obviously ends in nim. <laughs> Something nim. Right. Well, I'm sure there, there, there is a word, a word for it. There, there must be a word for those words that encompass within them opposite meanings a word that means it's a it's an auto antonym <laughs> that's what it is ah an auto antonym <laughs> Tr- tricky tricky or also clearly um, clearly i need to catch up on the grammar girl podcast because i <laughs> or, oh there's a couple others oh, that yeah, i like yeah, yeah. contronym which i like or an antagonym <laughs> Oh, an antagonism is pretty <laughs> good. Kind of great, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, we're nerding out over language, so we should probably move on. Yeah. Is there anything to move on to? I think that's pretty much it. What we're working on, what we recommend, and what yeah. we read. So I think that's it for this week, then. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be starting a series on characterization. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at PenAndParsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, SJJones.com. 
Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an Ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. You want to take the dog then? <laughs> Did you hear that? Golf, 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 golf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Doped up to the gills on allergy medication right now.